Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week, we discussed the three tournaments in Tokyo, Stockholm, and Antwerp. And this week, we're excited to be welcoming onto the pod Quinn and Parth, two former college tennis players who played for Pomona Pitzer in Southern California. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Just to kick things off, kind of want to give like a little bit of background about you guys and kind of your experience in tennis. So uh, let's just start with you, Quinn. When you were playing junior tennis, like what was your experience as a junior how young did you start playing and like, what was it like training and traveling to tournaments? Yeah. So I started at, I think eight years old, which I feel like is, is pretty standard. Maybe I feel like maybe even a little on the later side for most tennis players. And like one day my mom made me go to a tennis lesson. And I was like, I hate this. I don't want to do it. And then I got there. I was like, wow, this is the most fun thing I've ever done. I'm going to come back every day. Yeah. And just got into it real quick. By the time I was nine, I was like trying to get into tournaments and travel and I wasn't like particularly good but I was I was really into it and yeah just started the tournament scene uh, pretty quickly I was like kind of traveling a little bit more for practice to like sort of play with other juniors and people at my level and yeah that that whole process was just like a lot of time on the road I remember I remember that from the juniors that was a big thing that changed in college like wake up walk to the tennis courts in 10 minutes in juniors it was like 45 minutes to get to the court that i'm gonna play at every day sometimes longer like yeah just for a practice too and matches yeah we're even further away exactly how about you parth what was your what was your experience like it was definitely similar to uh some of the things quinn has mentioned i started playing tennis at probably seven and then i also my first tournament was when i was eight no one in my family had like really played tennis or any sport that much but tennis was always pretty like embedded into my family so we were always fans of the game and so my mom just had me try all the sports when I was a kid um, and I was pretty terrible at all of them Uh, so uh, luckily tennis was the one I was least terrible at and also the one I had the most fun with Uh, so that was that was going to be the one so yeah that just kind of um, sparked the passion and in both me and also kind of my parents as well. They they were excited to watch me play. And yeah, they shout out to them. They painstakingly drove me to every practice and uh, every match on the weekends. And even if it, the match, if the tournament on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. is a three-hour drive away for me to just lose in the first round, like they would still, they would do it and we would, we would do it all over again the next weekend. So yeah. definitely lots of time on the road. But I made a lot of good friends that way, Quinn included. We we grew up playing matches against each other, um, so we, we have a good uh, rivals to to friends trope going now. Um, <laughs> we we so. actually one of my first matches ever was against you. Wow, that's true. Quinn destroyed me. He kicked my butt. <laughs> How many times do you think you guys have played each other? Well, we played four times in juniors and. Quinn three of them so it's not really a rivalry if one person wins every time so <laughs> I might have won three parts I remember the loss very yeah. clearly I think one one thing about junior tennis is that it being like an individual sport it's very intense to have just like kids playing by themselves against other kids who are playing by themselves so that tends to 
bring out some uh unsavory aspects of of yeah. people's personalities me included like i you know i i've been a brat on the court thousands of times like many a tennis player but i think luckily one thing that stood out uh uh, when I played with Quinn is that I didn't want to like tear his head off. He was a good sport. So that was, that did was you call nice. a line judge on me. I did call <laughs> a line judge. that. Yeah. Like I said, I was a brat. The first match we played, Quinn was just footfall every serve. And I was like, this, I, I can't, I won't, I will not stand for this. I was down <laughs> probably in like six, one, five love or something. And I was like, let me turn this match around. <laughs> I'm going to get in this guy's head. Call the line judge. Yeah, turns out it was not the foot faulting that got him up a set in four breaks. So, (laughs) yeah, the parent commitment for a tennis is is so massive. I feel like that's a kind of a theme you see with anybody talking about junior tennis is like the parents have to be all in with it. Yeah, tennis is expensive too. It's like I mean, there's a reason why you know the vast majority of successful professional tennis players came from money. It's like really unfortunate reality, but like. It requires a ton of time and money and like resources. Yeah. I remember Quinn you used to show up to, to my house and you'd have uh, like a new pair of tennis shoes and we'd be like, we're, new pair of tennis shoes? And you're like, yeah, I wear through them in like three months and they're just done. Yeah. I mean, I wish it was three months. That was the shoes was probably the biggest cost in tennis for me. Like I was probably down to like three weeks a pair. Jeez. They, they usually had deals for, you know, like a six month warranty and some some people found like little loopholes where you could just kind of run it forever. Uh, I never I never was able to figure that one out. But uh, but yeah, I mean, like every three weeks, like one hundred and twenty dollars shoes. Pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. That six month durability guarantee was my first side hustle. Just take the take the shoe out into the backyard and shred it against the concrete. <laughs> <laughs> five months and 29 days yeah Yeah. there's a hole yeah exactly they're like oh it's crazy how this always happens on the last day (laughs) so you're getting into high school and then you start looking at college what was it like uh for both you getting uh recruited to colleges do you have any kind of interesting like recruitment stories i do actually have a unique recruitment story um and that is that i actually wasn't recruited (laughs) i I showed up. I just showed up to practice when I first got to campus um, in college. And yeah, I I introduced myself to the coach um, and some of the other guys on the team. And the coach just had me go out and hit balls. And I remember that I was so nervous when I got onto the court that I actually hit the ball, my first ground stroke, over the fence. It was (laughs) like the most unbelievable like surreal moment ever on the court for me i i was like dude it's this is like a tuesday afternoon why am i so <laughs> unable to do this thing that i've done a million times already you're just like it's um, over it's over yeah they picked him up yeah i was like wow okay thanks yeah thanks for thanks for coming um and you know i i settled down a little bit and i i started to win some baseline games and stuff against some of the guys on the team and so they the coach started to kind of notice that. And um, I, I spent my first semester just kind of like proving myself uh, uh, to the to the coach and to the team and um, playing in all these like showcases that they would have on our campus um, before the season started. And there's like the fall ITA regional tournament that I played in as well. I, I pretty much played my way onto the team and just got in that way. 
Very cool. Very cool. Nice. What about what about you, Quinn? What was uh, your recruitment like? Not like the no too crazy of stories. I had a really bad shoulder injury in high school. Um, took a really long time to get that diagnosed, figured out. Uh, and then like I got surgery. I think it was the summer before my senior year or the end of my junior year. Most recruiting is sort of done. I mean, so, some of the really good players get recruited really early. I, I remember there being some rules around that, like you couldn't get recruited too early. But like the recruiting happens junior year into senior like the beginning of senior year obviously because that's like when applications start at some point in senior year so i kind of wasn't playing much tennis because of that like the uh, my junior year was pretty hampered by the injury and then my senior year i had i think like fully eight months off the court so i didn't even apply uh, to colleges that year i really wanted to play in college uh, so i figured i'd give myself an extra year uh, off before I started and to all of the like training and getting myself you know back a ranking and putting myself out there again so yeah I uh, I did that took the year off I applied the next year um, got uh, like went through the recruiting process with several teams I knew I wasn't going pro I'm nowhere sort of near that level and so I really wanted to just like use I mean I wanted to be playing tennis in college because I love it and like I wanted to use it as a way to like go to a good a good school and get a good education. So I was like really looking at a lot of like D three schools with like kind of smaller, more like teaching focus. And the uh, Pomona Pitzer was was just felt like the one. It was such a good setup. I went, I visited, I prospied with uh, Parth actually. Uh, mm. He showed me a good time and. I like there was like a showcase where they have like juniors come out and play against the the team members like you know potential recruits come out just like lots of people and so that that like always those are the big pressure moments when you're doing recruiting and i ended up i ended up being one of the guys in the lineup somehow never never beat him again once i joined the team but uh <laughs> did that and i think from from there on i think i i kind of had my spot and yeah it worked out great that's great yeah now now you guys were on the team What's that kind of like being on a college tennis team? Because I know it's it's got to be a little bit different than other college sports teams where there's different positions. There's 11 spots in the field versus in this. Everybody's hypothetically playing the same position because you're all just playing tennis. So what is it like kind of trying to figure out where you are on sort of the team ladder? Like, what's that dynamic like? Mayhem. <laughs> it really just depends on the coach has all the discretion for setting the lineup and and deciding how to like judge players so uh it's really it it's pretty coach dependent and uh it kind of just matters uh how he's feeling about you and your game um and in comparison to the other people on the team of course and it's also a little bit about like matchups and stuff like sometimes the uh depending on what other team you're playing uh the coach will like rearrange some of the folks on the team so um it is it is pretty chaotic it's it's definitely not a job that i envy having to be the one in charge of setting the line because i mean tennis players you know you're out there for yourself like i mean not when you're on the team like there is a sense of camaraderie absolutely but like tennis players their whole lives our whole lives we were just out for ourselves doing this very individual sport and so there's a lot of big egos and everybody thinks that they're the best. Um, so it's like really hard to have to be like, okay, you're not in the lineup. 
and like yeah. here's why did you guys have any like intra-team like any like challenge matches or anything like that to help set the lineup and like where you were we did but it's kind of tough i mean like tennis is really matchup based like everybody's you know at a certain point everybody's pretty close and level and like you you might just have a really good matchup against someone but like i would say that we never really figured out <laughs> the the right process when when we were there and i'm not that like it was terrible but like it, it was constantly changing we had like challenge matches and whatnot but then like things would still just rearrange and it was different every year that's kind of my take i don't know if you think the same part i mean i think most of the players on the team were really advocating to have more challenge matches we would we would we all pretty much preferred just playing practice sets against each other rather than doing kind of more like technical drills and stuff like that but those even within those challenge matches there's so many variables like people are there primarily to do school that's that's kind of I mean that's why I was there like I like I said I wasn't even recruited I decided I wanted to go to the school first education was always the the first uh, priority and and tennis came after that so it you could have a tough test you have to study for or you know a long day in the classroom or any any number of factors that could contribute to you maybe not being all there uh for a practice match um in southern california heat uh later that day which i guess is the case for any ten- tennis team across the nation whether you're D- division one or division three but there's no like perfect science i think is the moral of the story to like determining the lineup i think it's very much uh a feel-based approach that most people take yeah one one reason i brought this up is because i saw this article from 2019 about tennis betting fantasy so the, it was essentially like i think you would pick a team of players and then uh each per player had a certain value and the person that got the most points from their hypothetical fantasy team won the, the bet i don't know how it really worked but the article said i mentioned quinn in my high risk high reward value play and the reward ended up being well worth the risk my worry wasn't about quinn's game but whether or not he would be in the lineup. He played singles all three days and notched nice wins over GAC in the quarterfinals and Washu in the third place match, likely assuring him a lineup spot moving forward, even as PP returns to the sunny outdoor lifestyle of Southern California. So that kind of sounds like there must have been some level of like tension with the coach and like uncertainty there, kind of like what you were talking about, where like you're like, I feel like I should be playing and I'm getting results like this, but sometimes it it uh you don't find yourself in the lineup yeah i mean that that definitely that was a struggle and we had a we had a great team that year um and like a lot of good players really vying for that that spot i was like sort of the sixth spot so like the last spot in the uh uh like in the singles lineup pretty much exclusively so it was like sort of a tough situation i like i i i played really well that year like it was it was a good year for me and i like uh, did well in my like head to head matches during the season and then like did well in my challenge matches. So like luckily got to have a spot for pretty much the whole season, but like I have a, I have a, a hard game to watch. And I think that it, it probably took some years off my coach's life. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a grind. I was, I was having consistent four hour matches and I don't think he loved that. <laughs> some might argue those are the most fun, kind of fun matches to watch, but maybe not if you're fun. the coach. I was having fun. Yeah. But uh, but I don't think he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on from sort of the lineup, 
speaking on just as a team, I know that like tennis is a, a different sport than some other ones. Cause there's a lot more of like side to side, fast burst kind of motion. A lot of people kind of compare it to basketball in terms of the athleticism. I was just wondering what kind of type of like workouts did you guys do as a team? Was it a lot of like sprints? Did you work on a lot of side to side movement? What, what type of stuff did you guys do? Uh, we did a lot of sprints, a lot of like plyometric stuff, a lot of, did you guys ever do the assault bikes for training? Terrible name for a, a piece of equipment, but like it <laughs> felt like it was, it was painful. They, they're like the, like wind resistance, like they have the like uh, fan in them. And they're 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 like an elliptical and bike combination. Yeah, it is you're so pushing hard. at the same time. Yeah, we uh we, we did those near the end. Uh, our, our facilities got them near the end of my college time, and uh, we would do for like two two or three times a week. We'd do team workouts, and they got so competitive. There was usually like at least three people that would throw up from that. It was so <laughs> intense, but it was really fun. Like a lot of stuff like that. Always good to get the competitive juices flowing in the workouts. Yeah, it's the only way. That's funny you mentioned throwing up because Aid and I were talking about when we would push the prowlers in yeah. football. And yeah, they would set up oh. trash cans for people when they were done to just go and throw up. And people would be crowding around each trash can, like throwing up on top oh of each God. other. It's <laughs> disgusting. Oh, that's so terrible. Bad. Sports are crazy, man. Yeah. yeah. Can't believe people do this. I always felt it was tough because the prowler, they would put like three <laughs> plates on it. And for someone that weighs 225, it's like, okay, this is a decent amount of weight. But then I'm pushing it and I weigh like 180. I'm like, this is just not fair. <laughs> I did an assault bike the other day and I would do 10 seconds just full out and then 20 seconds rest. Do that probably yeah, like 10 times. That's a good one. And then after I would get up, I got so nauseous. I needed to sit down and just take 10 minutes yeah it is yeah, crazy I, it's a the, crazy the workout. 20 on 10 off or 10 off 20 on those are the presets and it's like a four minute workout and you're just dead after it's mm -hmm. crazy yeah but i i love this question uh that aiden brought up about working out because i've been trying to incorporate more of like tennis specific workouts into my regimen because obviously bench pressing squatting or squatting helps in tennis but you know big heavy compound movements don't translate over to the tennis court. Like when I'm out there before I would feel kind of slow, not light on my feet. And then I started doing more box jumps, more um, body weighted stuff, more, a lot of the ladders too, which I thought were great. And, you know, it's obviously helping in the game, a lot of lat stuff like core. Um, no tennis workouts. They're definitely not the most fun or like aesthetically no, pleasing, but they definitely help in the long run. They're very humbling like doing yeah. doing the ladder workouts and like just trying to step over a hurdle that's at waist height and trying to like not move or like not turn your body while you're stepping over it to build the flexibility things like that it's it's a slow process to to get good at those things and like kind of unglamorous it's always like jumping rope helps a lot mm -hmm. to just kind of get uh light on your feet like you're saying so anything that could get you that explosive first move or like just like quick feet I feel like that's mm -hmm. it yeah hundred percent who needs arms <laughs> yeah exactly. no, no curls huh no curls no chance so Nadal's arms are cannons yeah I don't know I don't know how that happened <laughs> he's just he's just a specimen it's just how he yeah. how he was uh how he, he could, was born uh -huh. he can wear the cutoffs I don't know about Zverev though Zverev <laughs> wearing the yeah. tank top on the court <laughs> yeah 
You're like, what are you showing off, dude? I think the tennis like player archetype is now like lanky and, and skinny, mm-hmm. tall, and just flexible. Um, and Rafa seems to be uh, an exception to the rule. Alcaraz too. Yeah, Alcaraz is pretty built. There's yeah, there's the exceptions, yeah, but hundred percent like you like a sinner or a Zverev type of guy where yeah. it's lo- long and lean. Even, even Djokovic, Djokovic is is pretty skinny. Uh, I feel like he's gotten skinnier over the course of his career. If anything, um, he lost muscle back when he was like that was one of the things that he did to get better. It's crazy. Yeah, I can't even imagine trying to lose muscle. Yeah, <laughs> he's like I need to be For weaker. Me, you can't, yeah, you, you can't lose what you don't have if you're me. So I, I, I do not subscribe to that philosophy. Yeah. This is kind of an interesting question, but were you guys able to kind of express your own style out on the court or did you guys have strict rules with what you're going to wear to practice, what you're going to wear to matches and everyone on the team had to follow those rules or could you kind of stretch them a bit? Matches were were strict. We had like a uniform and uh, we like had a few different uniforms and like whoever the caption was would just coordinate be like, this is what we're all wearing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone would always screw it up or forget or <laughs> hadn't washed their clothes or something and would figure it out. But like, yeah, it, it was pretty strict during matches. Not pra- There was no rules in practice. Well, was it just a basic like t-shirt kind of and then shorts or did you guys have any nice polos or I don't know, different variations of tennis clothes? Yeah, we had a few at the beginning of the season we would get probably three or four match shirts and then maybe one or two practice shirts and each year it, it varied there were just your average regular kind of nike dry fit fits mm-hmm. um and that would include collared and uncollared shirts um and we would just try to create some sort of combination each day uh our our colors are blue, uh, orange, and white. So mm, the Mets. Yeah, basically, we we are basically <laughs> the Mets. Um, yeah, it was pretty much the same. Some some days we would we would rock the all blue top and bottom, the blueberry fit. Some days we'll we'll go all white. Some days we'll mix and match. So it was it was up to the captain. I could never convince the team to get orange shorts. I thought I think it would have been so <laughs> cool if we were just like traffic cones one day. Yeah, all orange. <laughs> Oh, orange fit. color rush would do it. dude yeah. you might blind the other the opponent <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. it's a distraction technique yeah we would have been breaking ground <laughs> exactly <laughs> but yeah so uh overall like do you guys have any best kind of matches or, or memories from your tennis career from juniors high school college that like you'd want to share that like you think was just a great like, tennis experience I can start with one for uh, for between us. I think one match between me and Parth was was really electric and memorable. I I think I want you're gonna have to uh, correct me on all this part because Parth, Parth's memory is much better than mine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure I won the first set six zero, and then I lost o six ten zero in the third set tiebreak, or like ten one was it? Yeah, I think I think it was ten one. I came out firing, and then Parth. Uh, the second set just decided that every shot he hit was a winner, and <laughs> and he did, he did until the end of the match, and I just <laughs> sat incredulously by as he worked me. What can you do? What can you do in that situation? Not much. It's surreal when you have like matches like that. It's so frustrating, but at a certain point, you just kind of are like, well, I'm gonna just keep making the ball, 
and like hope they come back to earth and sometimes they just don't yeah sometimes i feel like at least in my experience like that can be a little bit freeing for me when i'm like this person isn't missing i'm just gonna swing like all out like because if i miss it doesn't matter because <laughs> if i make it in they're gonna hit a winner anyway yeah i guess that's true <laughs> yeah i actually i have a match uh since since that was quinn's match i have uh a, a memorable match of my own uh i did not participate in the match by playing but i was uh, on the court for it in college tennis you can have your coach the assistant coach and then you can have one other person uh just kind of roam around the courts and like provide feedback for players on, during your, your teammates during changeovers so oftentimes our third guy would be just like someone on the team yeah um and so I was on Quinn's court for this match. I believe it was against the University of Chicago. And it was a pretty, pretty big match. They were number one in the country at the time. And we were, I don't know, probably like seven or eight, which is kind of where we would hover. So it was a big match. And we were playing them really tough. I think we, we might have even gone up 2-1 after doubles. And we just kind of had to maintain the level in singles matches to, to make the upset. And Quinn was playing six, and this dude that Quinn was playing was on fire. He hit the ball so flat and so accurately off of both sides and was just flying around the court. So I think he won the first set, and Quinn and I were talking on the changeovers, and, and we were like, yeah, this this guy is is feeling it right now. You just kind of got to hunker down and weather the storm. Um, and Quinn, he mentioned that he's kind of a grind I have never seen somebody just slowly break somebody's spirit just by getting every single ball back. If it's the last thing he he did, Quinn was was gonna do it. Um, that and was, so it was a crazy match. It was crazy, and he he eventually chipped away. He he snuck out the second set and then pulled it out in three. And it was it was one of the most exciting. Uh, times I've had on a tennis court and I wasn't even playing. It was it was so cool. Uh, unfortunately, we ended up losing the match overall 5-4, uh, but... It was so close. We were... It was so close. I, we were up 5-4 in the third set. Yeah, we had a match point to win it, and uh, the last match on, like, our teammate, he, like, called the ball out, and then the, the ref, like, yeah. overruled him. It was a really close call. Who knows? You know, whatever. It's, it was tight, but it's like, you know... A matter of inches it was a that was probably the most exciting day of our college tennis or of my college tennis career that was definitely the best win of my life i i mean that guy was way better than me but like they'd been in chicago playing indoors in the in the winter and they you know welcome to la it was 95 degrees and i and slower courts outdoors i was just gonna make the guy play for four hours and luckily he cramped yeah, <laughs> yeah. and like i was having the best match of my life also but yeah that was awesome I love that's that. Great. Yeah, that's a cool story. All right, how about other than matches? How about specific shots that you could just replay over and over in your mind? Like any tweeners, any uh any nice shots that stick out for you? That's a great question. My number one experience uh in USTA junior tennis matches was always uh losing the match and then my opponent's mom coming up to me after and being like, Great match tough loss but your game is beautiful your backhand is is gorgeous i'm like thanks person i your yeah. son just destroyed me um but i have a one-handed backhand so i think 
most of my memorable shots are are all kind of like up the line backhand passing shots or or things of that nature. I don't think I've ever successfully hit a tweener in like a sanctioned tennis match. I that's I need to join a like a USTA league or play some men's opens or something so I can knock that off the bucket list, but I should. I mean, I I try to come to net as much as possible and I'm not that tall, so it, the makings of hitting a tweener are there. Like, I should be able to make this one happen. That's a that's a funny one because <laughs> I used to always come to the net when I was playing and sometimes someone would feed me like what could be an overhead and I would just see it and I'd be like, got to go for the tweener just because I'm like, you don't always get the opportunity. I think honestly, embarrassingly in matches, like I still did that. I was like, I'd rather hit a tweener than an overhead sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like in real ass <laughs> college matches, like I, I don't know. <laughs> But I, I, okay, I have a vague memory of like an actual Parth like shot moment. And I'm going to butcher this. So, Parth, you're going to have to correct me. That that we played the like doubles classic in San Diego. And you were playing the, were you playing like UCLA team? Like we played USC's two doubles team. Yeah. Jake Devine and Logan Smith, I think. Oh, yeah. They're pretty good. (laughs) They they both had ATP rankings. (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing on this court right now? Parth was playing that, and I think you, like, won your first service game, or at least you were, like, winning the first few points on your service game, and, like, one of my teammates, I think I was on a different court playing, and one of our teammates came over to me and and was like, I I think these guys have never seen this slow of serves before, and they just didn't know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, he's throwing shade at Parth, but... Well, that's pretty hilarious. I mean, it was a change up. Same boat. Hit him with the change. It was true. <laughs> it was true. I got him with the off speed. Works <laughs> every time. Exactly. That was sort of tongue in cheek. Parth had the most beautiful game. You're not supposed to say this in front of Parth because he's an Nadal fan, but uh, his game looks like Feds. It's just so smooth, and he is a very, very good shot maker. That one-handed backhand. I, I, there's times when you're trying it out in practice, and you get a nice one. I can only imagine like just how nice it must feel when it's practiced and you hit, you just catch it correctly and you just pass the guy and you're like, yeah, I'm the best in the world. Yeah, it's probably like a drug. <laughs> just a big thing, man. Once you hit it once, you can't get enough. Yeah. I would not recommend if there are any kids out there listening to this, stick to two hands. It's not <laughs> worth it. It's, it's, it, it feels great. looks great it doesn't function great and and it could also be a product of just like me as a player but uh i think um on things like serve returns and and uh if you're on defense on a deep in the ad side like you generally want that second hand to help you get the ball back over i'm super surprised by like how enduring one-handers have been in the pro game like i know that like it's a lot less than you know way back in the day but like there's still so many great players with one-handers yeah federer probably helped that because people were like this guy looks sick i'm gonna do that yeah Yeah. all right i got i got a fun question for you though out of let's say stefano sitsipas stan vavrinka and dominic team who do you think has the best one-handed backhand it's got to be Stan. Yeah. I mean, his his backhand was, I think, better than his forehand for a while, right? Um, yeah. It was a tried and true weapon. It was, I feel like his backhand was one of the best backhands on tour, including the two-handed backhand players. Um, it was it was a tried and true weapon, and obviously it worked out for him. He, I think he was one of the best shots on tour. Yeah. yeah. But team, team is an honorable mention for sure. I think mm-hmm. his backhand is just 
electric. Tsitsipa, I would say, is maybe not quite on that level. I think it's a pretty uh, pretty glaring weakness in his game. I think people are starting to pick on it more and more, which it, it may that may help him in the long run. I remember Federer, when he was coming up on tour, would say that he credits people picking on his backhand as the reason why he why it got to the level that it did eventually. Um, so maybe that's in his future, but I think as of now, uh, Stan and, and team have, have, uh, got him beat. Mm. Did you guys have a player that you looked up to as a child that you tried to model your game after? Yeah, I, I was a Djokovic guy growing up. I was a huge fan, but he was amazing. And like, I still think he's, I mean, obviously he's the best player of all time, like on, on the men's side at least. And I, I really looked up to the way he played tennis and his game. I don't understand to this day how he loses points. Like I'm always like, whenever he loses points, he's the only player I've ever seen where I'm like surprised. I'm like, how did that happen? Did he just like take a nap? Like the, <laughs> like the Gojo match in the, was it Gojo in the US Open? Or he just like took a nap for the first two sets? No, that was uh, uh, Laszlo. Uh, Jerry, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. I should have known when you were alluding to it earlier where you said you're a grinder, you put on four hour matches, you get everything back. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I, you know, I, I definitely couldn't compare my game to Djokovic. We're not, we're not playing the same sport, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I certainly looked up to him growing up, at least as a player. What about you, Barth? My my tennis fandom, uh, a lot of it in the beginning was pretty derived from my parents. Uh, I mean, my parents are immigrants, so they came here and they're like, American sports are awesome, so we like American tennis players. So we were big. Uh, Sampras Agassi people when I was a small kid and then Roddick um, came up and, and we were big fans of his um, and towards the end of uh, Agassi's career he just kept getting beat by by Fed and so uh, we were sort of that sort of planted the seed of of uh, not being a Federer fan in the beginning and then this guy from Spain showed up and really took it to him and <laughs> he was exciting and wore capri pants and had long hair and big old muscles so it was it was uh it was he was an exciting guy to watch um and so uh from then on i became the world's biggest uh rafa nadal fan and so that carries on to this day i'm sad to hear that it's coming to an end uh in a year or so but it's uh it's been quite a journey watching him play and and being his fan so yeah uh i think yeah we, we've all been pretty lucky to have all three of them plus some uh extracurriculars like murray and delpo and wawrinka so it was a pretty uh cool time to grow up and watch tennis no doubt about it 100 percent for sure. So this this question kind of I, it popped in my head when you were talking about Nadal, and I was just thinking clay, different surfaces. When you guys would play other schools or have other tournaments, were they only on hardcore, or would you guys play on other surfaces? I can't remember ever playing on another surface in an unofficial match, right? Part like it was all hardcore, right? Yeah, I think it's all hardcore. I it's honestly it's a really good question because I wonder in other divisions like in in d2 or d1 if there's matches on clay at all having matches on clay for in d1 would probably maybe even benefit some of the like mid-tier teams because i feel like a lot of them have uh players come from other countries where clay courts Mm -hmm. might be more frequently found 
So maybe that could even the playing field. I think there should be play in American college tennis. I, I think that would probably uh, set players up for success on the pro tour if they want to go that route after. Um, I mean, we, we saw this year Ben Shelton played his first tennis match on clay. <laughs> yeah. And he was, he had been on tour for like <laughs> a year and he had played tennis obviously his whole life. Plays first tennis match on clay is that's that's I guess he's well, he was 19 or 20 or whatever so it's not that late in his life but like yeah for a pro tennis player to play your first clay match uh, that late to your career is uh is kind of it raises an eyebrow clay yeah. is like a skill too it's like it's different and it's really hard there's a reason why Americans suck on clay at least <laughs> usually for the first half of their career and usually for a lot of it it's like it's it's a hard skill to pick up. I mean, I don't have it, but like when, you know, Parth and I played on clay the other day, it's like, it's difficult. It's yeah. like, it requires a lot of, I don't know, extra moving parts. Different, different type of balance. Where was it? Was it in New York? Yeah. In Central Park. Yeah. Central Park. Oh, nice. Really nice. Cool. Cause they have a uh, red clay courts on 96th on the West side. Damn. Well, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. Just yeah. get there early. Yeah. Uh, 6am. We've been kind of, yeah. <laughs> we uh we've been doing a tennis tour of new york we we uh played at the like the usta national tennis center like where they have the u.s open um we just went online and booked a court um so that was a pretty cool experience played at central park good uh good tennis bucket list items we played in cancun at the rafa nadal academy this summer so we've been making the rounds that's awesome even in uh, Mallorca, I've seen so many pictures yeah. on Instagram of just these amazing tennis courts overlooking a fantastic view of the ocean or in the middle of a jungle. I'm like, dude, why can't I just travel the world playing tennis? <laughs> the dream job for me has got to be a computer science teacher at the Rafa Nadal Tennis Academy. And then I can just hit balls after class every day. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be, yeah, Rafa, if you're listening, awesome. hire us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you my resume. Yeah. All righty, uh, Eric, you want to hop into this last question before we get into kind of perspective stuff? Definitely. So do you guys have any advice for younger players who are looking to get recruited and um, are maybe a little lost or looking for something that they could do if you guys have any you know, piece of advice for them? I think it really I, – I don't have too much perspective on the like truly elite junior level, but I think for me just – when I was playing junior tennis every weekend and practice after school every day and things like that, a lot of it felt very high stakes. And like, there was just like so much riding on it. Like I, when I was a junior, I of course wanted to play in college and like wanted to win enough matches and get the ranking high enough and get my name out there. Um, but it wasn't always possible. Like not my results weren't always good enough for that, but that added to the pressure while I was playing these matches, I was like, Oh, I, it's like, I'm on the cusp of being able to, to uh, play in college. I hope I can do it. And so it felt there, it felt like there was a lot of pressure. Um, and I think I wish that I had a little bit more balance in terms of just like perspective on how to go about it in a kind of a more thoughtful way. And you playing tennis because making sure that I was playing tennis because it was like fun and good for me and not kind of being more of like a mental burden of sorts. And so I think my main advice is just uh, other than like, obviously like train and 
make sure you're playing good tennis and winning matches, of course. Uh, uh, have some balance. Uh, find maybe even play another sport for fun. Yeah, just kind of have uh, have that balance in life to uh, to not get burnt out. That's that's always so tough in tennis. I feel like yeah, it's like I mean, just we talk about it so much. It's like the one on one nature. You're the only one out there, and as a kid, that's just so overwhelming. So I feel like having other outlets and understanding that there's more to life and these moments that that suck and are really hard are just going to pass is like probably really important for the mental health and and the tennis game. Like I think when you when you can take a little of the pressure off, like you're going to have way better results. My my thoughts are don't be afraid to lose getting better. It's really easy to go out there and like play in a way that you haven't been training like to fall back into old patterns because they work but like that's not the way to get better i think some some people that are really good weren't afraid growing up to like lose going for their shots or you know like trying new patterns because you know if you lose the you know a random boys 16s or girls 16s tournament like that's not gonna matter when you're 18 like but like putting in that time to like develop your game uh, matters more. And it's really hard to remember that in the moment because all you want to do is win. Uh, or at least for me, that was, that was the case for me. And then also like getting out there when you're in high school and like meeting other players that are like going off to college, meeting, like finding ways to like do showcases and meet college coaches and like just putting your name out there is huge. It makes a big difference. Unfortunately, like, if they know your name and they know about you, it matters to some degree as well as your skill level. And that, was, that was never something that I was good at either. Like if you know the college coaches and they know you, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Both, guys. both great, uh, great thoughts, but yeah. So uh, now obviously we know who you guys are and uh, our audience does too. So uh, I wanted to hear some of your guys' perspectives on just like the current situation in tennis. I know you guys both tennis fans still. So, just wanted to bring up some ideas. There are some some popular topics that are going on right now and some of our favorites to talk about. So I just wanted to bring those up and uh, just want to kick it off with uh, Ben Shelton. This, this guy's like almost seen as right now is like the savior of American tennis. He's the next guy. He started off the year so hot at the Australian Open, shot up so far, had that long kind of cold streak that got kicked off by going on and playing on clay, which he'd never really played on before. But then obviously comes back, U.S. Open, massive run, uh, wins in Tokyo last week, and now he's in like the top 15 in the world. What are your guys' thoughts on him? What do you think about him right now? What's going on and what he's going to be seeing in the future? Park, lead us off. You got you got lots of good <laughs> stuff, I'm sure. Clearly a pretty meteoric rise for him. Uh, I remember last year at around this time, I saw him, Quinn and I went to the finals of, of my hometown challenger, the Tiburon challenger, and we saw him lose in that match. Uh, and it was, it was very clear that he was just like oozing talent. And as soon as it all kind of clicked, he was going to pop off after that. And that's essentially what happened. Um, he had already kind of made some, some noise prior to that match. I think he beat rude last year in Cincinnati that was kind of his uh, burst onto the scene moment. Um, and then he like lost in the first round of the U.S. Open, but it was in five sets. So he was like making some noise, still playing challengers, lost that final. It was clear that he was going to 
the trajectory was going upwards. And I was pretty surprised by the run in Australia. Um, I, I was mostly surprised by his fitness level because he played a bunch of like long five setters in that tournament. And it was obviously in Australia where it's super hot and he was, he was super resilient and just hanging in there and made it to the quarters. So that was a great run. And then he kind of fell back down to earth a little bit, obviously, uh, like you were saying, but I think what his game tells me is that getting free points on serve is a way to just get into the top 20 of the men's game. Like he saves himself so much trouble and he gets out of trouble so often with just gigantic serves. Obviously he's also 20 years old and the tennis ball probably looks like a watermelon to him. So it's very tempting for him to hit every single ball as hard as he possibly can. That leads to some ill-advised decisions on court, but I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he's showtime. I like that. He like kind of plays tennis. Like it's a performance. He like caters to the crowd. He it's similar to how Tiafo plays as well. Like he'll like really engage the crowd with, not only just like in between points with the reactions, but like the game, the play style that he has, like you can see sometimes he'll go for the showtime shot and it's he, I think everyone in the building, including him knows that it's ill-advised, but he'll just do it. And you you just, you love to see it. And so far it's, it's served him well. Like I think that's probably maybe the balance that he is needed to like not get burnt out and like, figure out how to be a pro properly when it's like really hard on tour and things like that. Maybe it's his release to just like hit a ridiculous forehand up the line at 105 miles when he had the whole open court to hit into and he didn't have to play with such low margin. Um, so I'm a fan. I think also the, you know, put the phone down celebration. I think that's good for tennis. Like he's, uh, he's a, kind of a polarizing guy because of the personality, but like it doesn't seem to me that it's in a toxic way. I think sometimes someone like Kyrgios can uh, seep into that uh, toxic area of being a, a bombastic personality on tour, yeah. um, smashing rackets and throwing chairs and cussing people out. And Sheldon doesn't do any of that stuff. Like he's only positive on court. Uh, I haven't seen him throw a racket. I barely even see him show any negative emotion, really. he He's just like, he's just screaming, yeah, after every point, which <laughs> I'm sure if I was playing him, I would be so annoyed by that. <laughs> but as a spectator, and I'm a fan of American tennis, of course. So I like it. I like it. Yeah, he, he lets out the emotion without like becoming the villain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's got positive energy. And he's just... He's so electric. He reminds me of Curios in that he's just like entertainment, like so much entertainment value, so much talent, like burst onto the scene. Like people didn't really have an answer at the beginning. I feel like a lot of times players break onto the scene and do really well. And then like if they don't continue to improve, people figure out their games and like they can drop off a little. It seems like Ben is is really like dedicated to building himself as a player and like being a professional i think he has so much talent if he can like continue trying to improve like point construction i think he could he could be one of the best players i mean he i guess he already is but like he could like enduringly be 
a really, really good tennis player. My my one thing that I'm worried about is he just comes out there. It looks like there's just no game plan. Like I was when I was watching at the U.S. Open, like like what Parth is saying. Some of the shot selection is just like, wow, that was never going to work. Um, <laughs> even after the U.S. Open, he sort of like started constructing porn, points a little bit better and started being a little craftier with his serve, taking some off sometimes, and like, yeah, I I think he's got he's got a great career ahead. Yeah. yeah, very well said, guys. Um, I you know I agree with a lot of it. I have a pretty funny story, Parth, about you know how you mentioned his 2022 U.S. Open run where he just lost in the first round, but it was a five setter. So I was it, I was on the grounds. It was the first Monday, and one of my buddies is texting me like, "Yo, you got to see this uh, Blake Shelton guy on court like 17." I'm like, "Blake Shelton <laughs> isn't that a isn't that a country singer?" He's like, oh, wait, I mean Ben Shelton. He had no idea. He goes, University of Florida sophomore serves bombs. Like, you got to see it. I'm like, all right. So I go, and it was the most electric match of the whole U.S. Open because it was on one of the smaller side courts. And he was the American. I think he was playing a Spaniard. So obviously, American crowd was just so into it, back and forth, five sets. That was awesome. So once I got that first, like, taste of Ben Shelton, I – I loved it. You know, it's, I th- I agree with what you said. I think he's great for American tennis. I think he's great for the sport in general. And I'm so excited to see what his future has in store. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Also like college tennis, shout out. I mean, that's pretty cool. I, I know he didn't do all four years or anything like that, but he, he had, he won a national championship with Florida. Uh, um, and that goes to show that, college tennis is viable on the pro tour um there's there are a few uh i think cam nori as well there's there's mm-hmm. uh mackie mcdonald mackie marcos Jerome. yeah lots of ucla yeah. guys yeah ucla is that crazy. yeah that team cressy they haven't figured out dennis novikov didn't really ever <laughs> end up panning out but he was good in college yeah it it is possible um and yeah ben Jones dad was the coach of that team too so yeah that that probably uh that probably helped and his dad was a professional tennis player as well so yeah i think <laughs> this the the stars really are aligning for him because i think i mean i wouldn't know obviously but i imagine that one of the harder aspects of being a professional tennis player is like learning how to be a professional and treat it like your full-time job especially when you're starting your full-time job at 18 years old after spending a year at university of florida which is a pretty, that's your, you know, it's a college. So it's yeah. <laughs> a very different lifestyle, I imagine, than no being a professional tennis player. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's same, not quite, I mean. Same colors, though. <laughs> same colors. I don't know. I don't know if Florida is as big of a party school as Pomona Pitzer, but, you know, we'll, 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 um, so I think he's in good shape. Didn't you have a fun fact? I feel like you told me a fun fact about him and his dad, like some some stat or or something. Yeah, I think they're the first father son duo to to both win an ATP event. I might have seen um, a post about that. Yeah, whoa. which is pretty, pretty cool. cool. So, I mean, yeah. having having someone like that in your corner probably helps so much. I think that's why. Also, Alcaraz has his support system has allowed him to kind of handle these really big intense moments that are pressure packed and life-changing uh because he's got Ferrero who did all the same stuff um yeah. so i think having someone like that helps a lot 
at, at a super young age too. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, uh, moving on from from Shelton, going on to a couple other young guys, uh, Holgaruna and Felix Ojalaiasim. My big thought coming into this this pod was, uh, will they recover? But I mean, w- this week's tournament's kind of a hopefully a signal that they're on the upward trend because Runa makes the semifinal and FAA makes it all the way through and wins the tournament somehow after having not a great year defends his title in the Swiss indoors, a crazy run. In my opinion, I did not definitely did not see it coming. Uh, What are your guys thoughts on uh, whether or not these guys are on that recovery and will continue to uh, kind of build back into 2024? I think they're on, I think they're both on the recovery. I, I, my sort of hot take is that like, I don't think, I don't think FAA is, I don't think he's destined to be in the top 10 ever again. He, he was for a little bit, right? Yeah. He was number six. Yeah. He's he, he number six. Right. So uh, I don't think, I don't think he's headed back in that direction, but I do think he's going to have, I mean, a better year next year than this year, because this year was, was pretty yeah. rough. But you think he's going to wear Where do you think he'll, he'll, he'll end up falling kind of like, in the in the teens or in the twenties or, I think late teens, early twenties is where he's going to sit. Mm. I feel like that that that's that's my opinion. I think he he's like he's definitely a very solid player. Um, I think he was dealing with injuries and stuff this year, and just a, a rough year. But like, I I think I think that that's sort of where he's going to fall. Sort of um, where like sort of where like Dimitrov is right now. Yeah, well, Dimitrov. I'm I'm really bullish on Dimitrov right now. He's playing really well. Yeah, he has been playing very well recently. What about you, Parth? What do you think? It's it's kind of a, a bummer for me because I really like Felix's game. I think he has the tools. I think his ground strokes. I'm not sure if they're really able to withstand high pressure packed moments. Um, I think he's a little bit prone to spraying balls and hitting some air and hitting errors uh, in on really big points and stuff. And I think that has kind of been one of his pitfalls so far in his career, but yeah, the, the fall off this year for him, I can't say I was expecting it. Um, It happened what it felt like it happened pretty suddenly. I thought he was going to do all right after he won Basel last year. I, I thought, I mean, and he had a good year in the slams last year as well. He took Roth out of five in the French and, and I, he beat Zverev in Wimbledon, I think. And so he, he was, the trajectory was looking good. Um, and then I guess it seems like he's been hurt for a lot of this year. I, I, I know he, he mentioned uh, after the French open first round loss that he actually just had diarrhea. And so <laughs> he just was not ready to like play a tennis match. Yeah. And I guess it's just been a litany of injuries since that point. Um, and it could be some, it could be attributed to kind of what Quinn was saying as well of uh, people figure out people's games. Um, these guys might just know how to, how to break down his, his, his game and, and uh, exploit his weaknesses. And maybe the same with Runa. I know Runa's also been hurt. And he's got some stuff going on off the court. It seems like he's got he's got a coaching carousel. I know he's got Boris Becker in right now, but uh, I think he has uh, an interesting relationship with his parents and stuff. So uh, it'll be interesting. I think they're, luckily they're both super young, and 
I'm sure they'll be fine. Uh, I can both, I can see them both being t- top 10 players, but I think the top 10 is also going to be kind of uh, a revolving door as well, because we were so spoiled with the consistency of these guys in the top 10 over the last 15, 20 years. I think it's just going to be the wild west for a little while. And, and Rune, Runa and Felix are no exceptions. There'll be some mainstays like the Medvedevs and the, the uh, Alcaraz is, of course, and Djokovic is a cyborg. He's going to play forever. <laughs> but uh, after that, it's really just anyone. I mean, Taylor Fritz was five in the world last year. And it just, the, look, you know, he's, it's very uh, hit or miss with these guys lately. Looks yeah. like Sinner is on the come up. So we'll see. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. I think not even just with the big three, but also you had guys like Songa, guys like Ferrer, guys like Burdich, who were all kind of just mainstays, just sitting in the top 10, kind of just holding those top eight spots. And maybe a guy would sneak into like the nine or 10 spot, but like you had guys that were just holding those top spots for a long time. So yeah, I think that'll be, it'll be interesting to see how uh, that revolving door kind of goes. But uh, what what were your thoughts on those tournaments overall? Because Obviously, kind of recently, we've seen a lot more upsets where a guy that wasn't a top seed makes it through, makes a deeper run, and then all of a sudden we get these tournaments. And I think in both quarterfinals, it was like maybe one seed had lost out of the top eight. I I watched the final today. That was that was exciting. Or sorry, the final. Of, I guess we watched both, but uh, the final of Vienna I thought was uh, was awesome. Uh, they had that one twenty minute game. Um, that was crazy. And I think that just kind of destroyed Medvedev. It seems like, I mean, serving a game for 20 minutes, I I just don't know how you come back from that deep. Like, I mean, it was an over three hour match, I think, or roughly three hour match. So like you're, you know, two and a half hours uh, ish into the match into like a long, the end of the long season, everybody's like, I feel like every, every year at the end of the season, it's kind of a shit show. Everybody's struggling after just a crazy long season. So I just like, I imagine he's exhausted, has to serve 20 minutes, and then uh, I guess that was the end of it. Although he did break back right after. That was, that was pretty crazy. But uh, that was a really good match. Center looks great. 100%. Yeah, that was a great match. That It was pretty funny because the announcer actually compared it to a war of attrition. Like, these two were just battling each other. The points were so long and drawn out. Like you said, the... The games were extremely long. It was it was a battle. I felt bad watching. Yeah. What did he say? He said beautiful brutality. I was like, ooh, that's a weird quote. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Yeah. I was uh I was pleasantly surprised to see Sitsipa string some wins together. Um I know he's been kind of uh a one or two and done the last few tournaments and he he kind of he made a deep run, he made the semis, but again, I think there's obviously levels to to the game, so I think Medvedev is currently on a different level than Sitsipas right now. Uh, Medvedev is pretty pretty in form versus Sitsipas that isn't. But I did think that it was interesting in that match. I saw that uh, Sitsipas started the match to serve, and he served and volleyed five straight mm-hmm. points to start the match, and I loved that. I loved the idea of just like giving this guy a different look and just like trying stuff out. That was always the most frustrating thing watching folks like Andy Murray or Gail Mofis just, or even like 
some, I don't know, Gilles Simon, just these like grinder types of players. Just try something different. Try taking someone by surprise. You guys are all so talented. You guys hit millions of tennis balls every year. I'm pretty sure you can get some, take some, win some easy points by uh, trying something like serve and volleying. I think that's what I'll talk about more in my match of the week, but uh, I I like that out of uh, Ben Shelton as well. I saw him chip and charge a little bit on the center serve, which was super sick. Yeah. One cool thing about center is I feel like I've talked about in the past, it, it was kind of seemed like there was almost a separation from the top three guys, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Djokovic, where it was like, you don't really expect them to lose to anybody other than one of the other two. And it seems like Sinner's almost kind of bridging that gap up from like the number four spot up so that he's in in the conversation with those guys is like, okay, we could see this guy winning any of these tournaments as well. Yeah, I mean, Sinner's a huge contender right now. Uh, he like I remember when we used to watch him when he was younger, I was just like, this guy is just like so relentless with like how uh, like just aggressively, like how much pressure he puts, how hard he hits, but he just misses so much. Yeah, um, I was going to say, don't you think that's kind of his Achilles heel, too? Yeah, Because he totally. did make a lot of errors today. Yeah, he did. And, like, he, yeah, I mean, it was it was really back and forth. Like, I mean, in the first set tiebreak, he, like, completely lost. He missed, like, the – he missed – he made errors in, like, four of the first five points, just, like, unforced errors, I think. Then, you know, cuts it all back together, smacks a bunch of winners. And, like, yeah, he's definitely streaky, but – A man after my own heart. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Part loves that. He, I mean, he he's making it a lot more, and like he's certainly putting a lot of effort to improve his game. You can tell. Yeah. Do you guys think like what are your predictions for the Paris Masters? Do you think Sinner could make a, a massive run there? Maybe maybe pull it out there as well. Djokovic it's possible. Playing, I mean, so. indoor indoor hard courts. I guess Djokovic is playing. Indoor <laughs> hard courts are gonna probably help someone like like Sinner. Um, I think uh, I, I wonder how his body feels. I mean, he's made deep runs in a bunch of tournaments lately. I guess he, uh, Shanghai was the only one where he didn't go too deep. But yeah, I wonder if fatigue plays a role. Yeah, especially just hitting every ball as hard as Sinner does, <laughs> it has to wear on you eventually. Yeah, especially if he plays someone like Djokovic, where like Djokovic has had what. Yeah five weeks off i don't know how long it's been since he played a match so he's going to be coming into the match fresh versus center who's played 15 matches in the last three weeks yeah and then a three-hour one today uh they are in the same half so they face each other in the semis i remember i was looking at the draw earlier and first off i think my 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 biggest take is that dimitrov's gonna get his revenge against medvedev in the second round or yeah second round second round i don't know they're, they're playing each other early and uh i think i think dimitrov's gonna pull it out uh, he's been playing so well medvedev looks i mean medvedev has been playing pretty well too but he's i don't know had a had a long week yeah and just wanted to type it was a tight three setter i think against uh dimitrov this past week and i think dimitrov is gonna be out for blood that'd be uh i'll be a cool a cool uh match to see be looking forward to yeah. it yeah, I'll be watching for sure. Tiafo Bublik. 
What else? It is also going to be a good match. Yeah. Talk about a bet of the week for me. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, Are it you is, taking Bublik? I, I am taking Bublik, but we'll get in that, into that in a little bit. But <laughs> I do think it's funny, though, when you look at a tournament like Paris, where you're looking at the first round and you're like, oh, there are matches where Bublik versus Tiafa, where you're like, this is just a rough matchup for these guys. But then you look at another matchup, and I yeah. think there was one like, like uh, I want to say Mueller versus Safulin. Like, they're good players, but the the level, you're like, this. these guys got kind of lucky because one of them's getting yeah. through this first round. Whereas if they I think played... Safulin, Safulin's been playing well. I think he's going to be kind of a tough first round for Alcaraz. I think he's going to win, and I think he's going to be a tough first round for Alcaraz. Yeah. Isn't uh, there a Korkoch Korda first round? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's going to be, that's going to be, exciting. that's my bet of the week. <laughs> Damn. That, that's I, tough because Korkoch is nine right now in the race to turn. Uh, uh, yeah. I think uh, so. I think he's number nine. I think he passed uh, Fritz recently or yeah, like Fritz this, is, this, Fritz this week. Out, I think. Speaking on that, I mean, race to turn. Who do you think is going to be those last couple guys? Because we got five guys in now. There's only three spots left. I don't know. I'm not an expert on how all the points work out. It seems like it's coming down to the wire. Runa, I think Runa, I think Runa will will do it. I think he's going to have a pretty solid tournament. His draw is like doable. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know who else. I would love to see Herkoch. Yeah, he could sneak uh, in. He's. Out. I think it's really going to be a situation where whoever does better of those two guys in Paris ends up taking that last spot. Yeah, they're within like 200 points of each other, something like that. It's sick when the last tournament decides uh, who makes it in. I love the I love the drama. I remember 100%. in like whatever it was like two thousand eight or nine, maybe Sanga was playing the finals of Paris against Nalbandian, and whoever won that match was was in, and whoever lost was out, and it was crazy. And Sanga was playing in Paris, so home country. Yeah, and he just pulled it out, made the made the Shanghai. Uh, world tour finals crazy was still around in 2009 that's crazy yeah speaking on that that last tournament though like do you think uh Djokovic or Alcaraz is gonna end up being that year-end number one obviously it's an uphill battle for Alcaraz right now but do you think he can pull it out I I think Djokovic has got it I would never bet against Djokovic he's rested he's Djokovic yeah and like I mean it's a it's been a long season for Alcaraz like I bet he he's tired and like hurting yeah he almost didn't play i feel like it's kind of a surprise that he's ready to go for paris and, and turin i just saw his like post on instagram about how he the message was basically saying surprise i'm back yeah uh, and so i guess he is playing but we'll see i i think uh it does seem like he's hit a bit of a fatigue wall um this year which i don't blame him because my God, he's played a lot of intense mentally and physically taxing matches this year. So, yeah, long season. I, I think the thing about it, too, for, for Alcaraz is like, I think there was almost a level of he came back because he was injured at the beginning of the year and he was like, I have to make up for lost time. And he almost went like pushed it too far because he was like, I have to make up for it. But then he went almost harder than he would have if he had started the year at a normal pace i feel like that happens a lot too like with the younger players they tend to like like sort of overexpose themselves like kind of play themselves into the ground and then like as they get older they like learn how to 
pair that back. I feel like that's a pretty common theme. I mean, you look at Djokovic now, and he plays in like eight tournaments in a year, but they're all the biggest ones, and he wins all of them. It's unbelievable. Yeah, some of some of his tournament misses are uh, are not on purpose. I feel like. Well, I guess they are. I guess if you're not getting vaccinated on purpose, that'll <laughs> you, you, that that sets your schedule for you. Yeah. But I do think uh, what Quinn is saying is is super true. I think that's probably at least in my opinion. I think that's why Dominic Team is is kind of washed right now. He played so many tournaments for like a stretch of four or five years in the beginning of his career. He played. He was playing every week for so long, and now he has no wrists. So I, I can't help but think that may have contributed to to the downfall. I know he's kind of slowly making his way back up, but I mean, he's I, it remains to be seen if he's going to return to the elite level he was at. Um, yeah. We'll see. I think he's still playing a ton of tournaments, though, which is <laughs> the irony of it all, because he, he needs all the matches he can get and all the points he can get. But that's kind of what got him into this pickle in the first place. So we'll see. Yeah, he's playing Wawrinka though, so I'll I'll be watching that match while you guys watch oh, yeah. all the all the other ones. Um, <laughs> I'll stick to my one handed backhand brothers, um, exactly. and then I'll just stop watching the tournament. All righty, one last question before we hop into to segments. I don't know when you guys may be able to come back on, so uh, I just want to hear one like bold take you guys have going into next season, twenty twenty four. Like, what's your your big thought you think is going to happen. Maybe, maybe Ben Shelton grand slam final could be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I think uh, this is more of a, a want rather than a, a prediction, but it would be very cool to see Rafa and Alcaraz play doubles at the Olympics. Um, I think that would be a great send off. I know uh rafa has expressed interest in that um i'm not sure if alcaraz has responded to that interest but oh i mean uh, i think if i, I think, think you, if you i think if rafa has has interest in it then alcaraz will do yeah. it he grew up at the nadal academy and he just snubs him rafa <laughs> rafa asks alcaraz to play with him in his last tournament ever before he, he they have to amputate his knees because he can't walk anymore whatever yeah. injury he'll have then <laughs> yeah now Chris is like nope yeah, no, yeah. I'm, good. I'm good i gotta i gotta do some load no, management. I'm actually... <laughs> yeah i actually am gonna play with pablo carino busta instead <laughs> sorry guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> how about davidovich fokina <laughs> yeah that's that's gotta be it yeah i think my hot take is that nadal like for the 18th time in his career, we'll we'll find out that he just has five more years in him, and he just wins three of the Grand Slams this year, and <laughs> he looks like he's 18 again. Somehow his hair is all grown back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there were so many times growing up where I was like, "Wow, I think I think he's done." That was like a really. It, it seems like this is it, and it just it never is. He's yeah. just like had such a long career, despite all of the injuries. Yeah. Okay, are you guys ready to hop into segments? Yeah, let's do, let's it. do it. Sounds good. All right, Eric, uh, what's your what's your what's new this week? What'd you see? Yeah, so I saw an article in Tennis Three Six Five. Interesting headline: Boris Becker employs unorthodox move to help Aruna. 
And when I first saw this, I thought that it was alluding to the fact that Boris Becker was making Runa play chess because I had previously read an article where he would do that with Djokovic. But it turns out it was just having Runa not wear a hat or necklace during his matches, which I thought was pretty interesting. Apparently, you know, obviously less distraction there um, seems to be working. My take is when you're in kind of a slump as Runa was in, you got to try anything you can to just get out of it. And this seems to be a good first start. Kind of brings me into what I was kind of talking about earlier. I love tennis fashion, tennis style. And I always just kind of associated Runa with his backwards hat with his little hair coming out in front. And it's so strange to see him without his hat. It almost doesn't look like him. But um thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I think the backwards hat look is sweet if you can pull it off because not everyone can. And just the players, a few players that come to mind, you know, Tommy Paul, swaggiest player on tour, Struff, uh, Kyrgios always, and then JJ Wolf sometimes with his long mullet coming out the back. Great look. What about the, uh, what about wearing the visor like uh, Roddick did? <laughs> Rod- yeah, that's so early 2000s. That's have looked that very few people Jeez. can pull off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. The Reebok visor. Exactly. Uh, what a Brad Gilbert time. told him he wouldn't coach him unless he t- unless he stopped wearing the visor. So he <laughs> oh, switched the funny. hat. He probably had like that's, that's, frosted tips too. <laughs> yeah, that's so Brad Gilbert of Brad Gilbert to do yeah. to not coach somebody because they're wearing a visor. Yeah, when he do like sideways visor too, <laughs> be like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for that like, interviews and stuff. Yeah. Uh, what about you? I Andy? saw that Runa. They asked him about that hat. Runa yeah. said that he yeah, just yeah. didn't want to. He he doesn't want to lose his hair, so he's not wearing <laughs> the hat. Fair. Right <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, my uh, my what's new is uh, it was an article talking about how Medvedev kind of supporting Djokovic in this comment Djokovic made about the ball changes from tournament to tournament, because obviously like each tournament plays with like a different ball with slightly different weight, different feel on the racket, and so. Medvedev and Djokovic were saying this kind of contributes to a lot of like shoulder and wrist and elbow injuries that people have on tour. And they were proponents of the idea for like one ball for all tournaments. I don't think that would really work just because of all the different ball brands. There are all the sponsors, but uh, Parth and uh, Quinn, do you guys have any like take, like obviously you guys probably played with more different balls. Like, can you really feel how drastic of a difference there is when, it's a different ball, like a different uh, college or something like that. Definitely. Uh, I I mean, so oftentimes it was like the conference usually has their own like ball, like our conference used pro pens for most of our college career, then switched to else and US opens. You could totally feel the difference, like different balls, like completely changed the game. And like some balls, like, I mean, I had a bad shoulder. Like if I was playing with certain balls consistently, I, it, it was a lot harder on my shoulder. Yeah, sometimes like I mean the heavier balls were, were pretty hard on my shoulder. Sometimes when the ball was too light, I kind of found it being hard. But like, yeah, it was definitely something that I noticed. But I think that that's part of the game. I mean, like you have completely different courts, different surfaces. Like if it's causing more injuries, and I guess there there is some data on that. It, it having caused like they they were been going to heavier balls, right? And it's been like there have been more injuries. I think it's just I think it's just like the the mix up like having to deal with like oh you have a heavier ball but then 
all of a sudden you go to a lighter ball, kind of like you were talking about, like sometimes a lighter ball causes more injuries. So I think just like having that inconsistency with how they were hitting the ball. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, if it's causing injuries, then, you know, that's definitely something to evaluate. I don't know what your take is for it. Um, I did see that Wawrinka also posted a little montage of pictures about how in four different weeks, there's four different types of balls. And he was kind of calling out the ATP being like, can you like care more about player health, please? Why, why is there such discrepancy in all in the balls every week, which I get, I mean, I've, I've been kind of hearing about it more and more. Uh, Medvedev has lots of takes on it because he just kind of likes to, I've never, I've never heard of him, uh, talking about conditions or balls positively so he's he uh, i hear from him all the time him trying to just talking about court speeds and and ball heaviness and things like that um but i think a lot of the speculation i've seen online and i i i could reasonably believe it that they are trying to make these balls heavier and the court courts slower and more homogenous speed wise because they want to prolong points and and make these make it more of uh, a spectator sport and these pros are bashing these ground strokes all the time and that will probably uh, shorten points to a degree that the ATP probably doesn't want um, and so I guess they're trying out sl- heavier balls and slower courts so obviously we don't want that to come at the cost of player health so hopefully they can find some middle ground I'm sure once more players start speaking up about it that that will probably change things. Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, yeah. Parth, I know you brought a uh, brought a what's new this week. Uh, what did you see this week? I saw an interesting um, Instagram graphic about uh, Sinner's serve motion change uh, starting in July of this year, and this huge breakdown of how his serve stats improved just across the board, uh, just like first serve percentage in. First serve percentage points one, uh, double fault percent decrease, uh, free points, uh, aces, all all the good stuff that you want to you want your serve to do. It seems like he improved on, on all of them after a subtle but pretty meaningful change um, to the serve motion. It, it I think he went from uh, serving with more of a form stance when he was tossing the ball up to uh, tossing the ball up and then bringing his right foot up to close to the baseline alongside his left to kind of Mm. form a more like pin uh, style of serve motion. And it seems to have helped him a lot. I think what you're saying of him kind of being that bridge now between the top, the top three guys and everyone else. uh, I think him doing that and getting a lot of free points is helping him a lot because if you get free points in your center, that obviously makes you less prone to hitting errors and, and getting tired and things like that. So um, it seems to be paying dividends. I mean, you got to win over Alcaraz, which is pretty cool. Got a title yeah. today. So um, I thought that was interesting. Um, and then the only other thing I, that was of note for me was uh, reading about the WTA finals in Cancun and how the, um, like the stadium court is not finished and they're not letting the players practice on it. There's only another practice court that players can practice on. There's only one stringer at the facility, which is just, 
that's tough to hear. You you don't you don't want that to be yeah. the case. You'd think they'd be prepared like a little bit before. Uh, exactly. Exactly. It's just like it's brutal to like see the discrepancy. I mean, the like world tour finals in London and Shanghai and Turin now are like the most extravagant times of the year in tennis. Like it's so it's ATP is on the on the world stage for this week. Like top players in the in the world are gonna all play against each other for a week. Like we gotta make sure things are up to par. Seems to not be the case for the WTA so far, which is tough. I hope I hope that changes. I mean, at least as far as women's sports goes, like tennis players, women's tennis players are like the marquee women's athletes a lot of the time. Like they're amongst the highest paid and like it's one of the only sports where like the men play alongside the women at these facilities and like at the same time and stuff. So hope they can figure that out. hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's definitely a couple big things to note. The center serve thing. I didn't know that would make that big of an impact, but it's cool to see that it has also uh, the, the Brooksby doping suspension. Yeah. I mean, I, that was something that Parth and I have been talking about lately. That's, that's tough. I mean, it's like 18 months, I think. It's like pretty tough early in the career. And he, I think you guys talked about it a, a while back when it was first coming up on the podcast. I think I remember that yeah. a little while ago. And yeah, it's tough. Like, I, I don't know what it's like. Uh, I remember my, my coach growing up, he, uh, he like had been on the tour and he said that it was pretty intense with the, with the drug testing. And like, they would just like show up at like random times as a surprise and you just like had to be ready and do it. So like, I don't know, it's possible. I don't think, yeah, I, I really, I'm not sure what the situation is with like missing drug tests, whether it really was an accident. Yeah. Um, but that's, that sucks. hundred percent. I mean, I, I saw based on what I read about it was that like two of them, he was like, these were my fault. I take the blame for those. But then like one of them, it was like he was there for the entire time. They said they were going to be there. And then he left or something and they called and were like, we're coming to do this test. And they said that he wasn't checked into his room or something like that. And there was all this confusion about it. And if you were going to admit that the other two were your fault, like, and he has this like reasonable sounding story about this third one, it seems kind of crazy. They would suspend him for so long. But I guess that's just how it goes. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, clearly not HGH. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he's just gonna come back though, like uh, like Jari after his suspension. Just oh yeah, break back into the top twenty out yeah. of nowhere. Could be. Yeah, he. I remember seeing him play because he's from NorCal, uh, like us. And I remember seeing him play when he was like eleven. Uh, I was in the sixteens or eighteens. I can't remember. Uh, I think it was the eighteens actually, and. Uh, he was playing in the 18s. Uh, oh my god! He was the 16s, but I thought it was the 18s. And uh, the number one in NorCal, Victor Fam, was uh, uh, playing against him, and it was so electric. I mean, Victor beat him one and one. But like, I was watching this match, and I'm like, this guy is smaller than the tennis racket, and this, <laughs> this guy he's playing is so good. Like I played him before, he just hits the crap out of the ball. And this little kid is just getting everything back. Has like the ugliest strokes, the right, like yeah. can barely hold the racket, but like just everything comes back. They're having like 30, 40 ball rallies. And it was just so fun. I just like, I forgot about all of my like tennis stuff. I just sat there and just was mesmerized by the match. But yeah, I don't know. It was, it was cool, you know, watching him come on to the scene. Would be cool to see him back. 
Yeah. Yeah, they're like they're like asking, they're like, Have, has this person checked in yet? You're like just sitting watching this match. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, don't, I don't need to play anymore. Exactly. <laughs> All right, are you ready to uh, hop into bed of the week? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, so I am taking Hercotch plus 105 over Corda. I'm a little surprised that Hercotch has positive odds here. You know, I Insane. don't really understand it. So I jumped all over it. Obviously, you know, he's up two to one head to head against Corda. He's been in two finals the last two weeks. I don't really understand it, but hey, I'm not complaining. I feel like the odds are going to change once we get closer to the match Tuesday morning. So another thing I did want to say too, I had I had Medvedev winning today, so I lost that bet, but I did hit a pretty sweet prop uh, over 10 and a half games in the first set. I don't know why, but I went for it because I looked at each of their previous matches and the last three were 12 games. So I figured, um, I don't know, I'm going to try it. Why not? put a little money in and of course that one hit so kind of made up for the medvedev loss nice i'm going with bublik plus 115 over tiafo like we kind of talked about obviously i mean bublik just won that tournament in antwerp but last time i took him it didn't pay off because he lost rude in the first round but it was a good match overall Uh, i think he's been playing pretty well and i think tiafo has been a little mediocre since the U.S. Open. He lost to Sonigo and Karatsev, who are good players, but not at, at the top level, uh, the same level as uh, I think Bublik is. And his other matches he's played, he beat Monfi, and he had a walkover against Dan Evans when he was down 1-4. So <laughs> I'm like, that's just a little bit of a stroke of luck for him. But uh, I think I think Bublik can get it done. Yeah, looks like we're going anti-American this week. <laughs> yeah. The opposite. Some some Short of our other the weeks. American, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. How about match of the week? Uh, my match of the week was Stricker beating Rude 6-4-3-6-7-6. It was a close match, but I kind of wanted to bring it up because we have some some good tennis players on this week, and I wanted to talk about a strategy aspect because – Based on what I was seeing in the match, like it seemed like Rude was finding a lot of success just as long as he just kept the ball deep and kind of pushed Stricker back off the baseline. Because when Stricker was able to be close up on the baseline, he was able to inject a ton of pace, especially on his backhand, which was really impressive. He would step into that backhand and just smack winners with it. So I wanted to know, like, based on like your guys' perspective, how difficult is it to employ even a simple strategy like just put the ball deep uh, when you're at someone's level like, like a rude because obviously he's an excellent player it seems like it wouldn't be that tough of a strategy but it, sometimes i guess you're not able to to pull it off yeah i think hitting the ball deep is is hard <laughs> yeah i uh, when you're playing something at your level like keeping the ball deep is like that's almost always the strategy unless you're like a monfi and you like to just kind of like toss one short in the middle let them be on offense so that you can like show off that you're <laughs> <laughs> an insane athlete and crazy defender and shot maker but like most i mean most people the goal is to just hit as deep as you can like like it's really overwhelming when people can consistently hit deep like no matter what the strategy aside from that is yeah i'm i i'm not surprised that was rude strategy but i am surprised that he was having a tough time employing it because he i feel like he's notorious for just having a margin of error over the net and putting air under the ball with a lot of spin which theoretically should 
give you what you need to get the ball deep in the court. Um, but maybe, yeah, just wasn't feeling it that day. I know Stricker has a big game. Um, he And he has pretty flat strokes, so maybe Rude was having a hard time picking the ball up in the fast indoor hard court and getting it deep enough. I think Rude needs to be more aggressive, if anything. I, I think uh, he's, he's a big boy. He should uh, be able to... Uh, slap some forehands every now and again he he had in my opinion i think he's a little too conservative at times but it's served him reasonably well despite his ups and downs throughout the last few yeah. years but uh yeah one thing i've actually seen that was talking about rude was like and it's kind of true is that he plays so well on clay and then you expect that from him on all the other surfaces and it's like you get flashes of it but when he's on clay, it's just a, another level, and you just don't see it when he's on hard court. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully he can get back to that level of uh, playing in the U.S. Open final at some point. It's crazy. He still made a slam final, and he might not yeah. make the World Tour finals. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Insane. Not inconceivable. Yeah. Dude, talk about a fall from grace. But, yeah, my match of the week was Shevchenko upsetting Fritz. 6-7, uh, 7-6, six, seven, seven, six, seven, six. I haven't seen a three-set tiebreaker um, match in a while, so this one stuck out to me. And unfortunately, Fritz blew another um, match here. He had a few match points that he just couldn't capitalize on. And this is kind of what we brought up earlier in the year, Aiden, break match points. So um, Shevchenko was serving and... I don't know if, if it's different having a break match point versus match points that they should be counted differently. I don't know. Yeah. But overall, this, you know, super long drawn out points. Um, Shevchenko just basically defended and let Fritz make the airs. I thought Fritz could have been more aggressive. And one thing that really stuck out to me in the match was in the third set tiebreaker, Fritz got his ankles absolutely broken with Shevchenko coming in, acting as if he was going to like put away a, a winner and then just hit a drop shot. And Fritz was super off balance and just completely fell. And that was Ooh. something I wanted to bring up because you guys having played college tennis, is it a thing to have your ankles broken like that? You know, do you guys call it that? Is it something, is there a name for it? Cause it's kind of like getting crossed up in basketball. It's like your opponent kind of outsmarted you in a way to the point where you fell on the floor. I spent a lot of time on the on the on the ground in tennis <laughs> matches. Just uh, what not being able had... to transfer the weight, getting faked out. Luckily I had strong ankles. Getting yeah, definitely a thing in tennis. Um getting your ankles broken for sure. I think it it kind of based on what we've heard, it kind of reflects the basketball aspect. What we've heard about your mm-hmm. your game, Quinn, is uh it's like when the harder you're defending in basketball, it's like the more likely you are to get your ankles broken because you're Ooh. going so aggressively into every turn and cut. So it's maybe it's a similar thing in, in tennis where it's like if you're going all out to get every single ball, you're more likely to get hit with a mix-up and end up on the ground. Yeah, maybe right. that's true. Quinn, I got a question for you, though. So when you did spend all that time on the ground, did you take after Djokovic and just stay on the ground extra long, be all dramatic, and just kind of <laughs> stay there for a bit? You know, I did look up to him. He's so he's so funny when he hits the deck, Djokovic. <laughs> it's like a whole ordeal. Yeah, yeah he's unbelievable what he does. I, I don't think I was ever like that. 
Um, I, I was usually trying to get back up because I was still on defense oh. and I had hit a lob about 600 feet in the air. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, he's unbelievable. Like when he just like has these times where he just like can't stand up straight. It's so weird. Like he does that thing where he like falls over as he like hits a ground stroke and like, <laughs> just, like he makes like the, the, I don't know, big theater of it. It's crazy. Exactly. exactly. So frustrating. Already, uh, Parth, what about you? What'd you have for match of the week? It's obviously I haven't talked about him enough today. Uh, either of these guys, actually, I, I had Sinner over Shelton seven six seven five. I think uh, that's just a high octane matchup because mm-hmm. of their play styles. It, it's they're both so hyper aggressive with absolutely no plan B. So either of them are just gonna go down swinging, um, and they both kind of brought it that day. Um, they were both playing pretty well there were only a few points here and there that decided that first set and then in the second set it was the same deal um i also liked i i'm always pretty intrigued by uh when players play each other in a short time span like when there's a rematch of a match that happened a week ago so shelton just beat center seven six in the third um in shanghai and i was just curious to see like how because there's so much like there's a mental game aspect i imagine of like a rematch just with like any sport um beating someone twice is kind of hard um so i was intrigued to see if if shelton was gonna be able to pull it out again because i guess the first time they the, the match in shanghai was i guess considered an upset um and uh yeah they they both um were playing pretty well i liked seeing Shelton's variety um, and seeing him chip and charge and come to net. He's a pretty tall guy. So his wingspan uh, is suitable for that sort of play style. Um, and then the other thing I noticed was that it was kind of a role reversal. Usually in a Ben Shelton match uh, points are short because Ben Shelton decides they're going to be short, whether he's <laughs> hitting an unreturnable serve or if he's going to hit a forehand six feet long. Um, but I noticed that uh, Sinner got out of jail a few times uh, with big serves on in clutch moments, and I thought that was pretty cool. I think that's just going to serve him so well. Um, it's it's just like a huge morale boost to get free points on your serve, and obviously there's like a physical benefit as well, not having to grind and uh, play a long point. So, uh, and and Sinner is not known he's not a, a notorious uh, defensive playmaker but uh he is definitely i think a little better on defense than shelton and that seems to me what kind of played a big role in the end because not only was he getting three points on his serve but he was able to just kind of uh stab ben shelton's uh serves back in play as well so ben shelton wasn't able to do that all the time on Sinner's serve so it's a pretty cool match. I think these young guns, there's a lot of good rivalries. It's not just like Federer and Rafa being like the one marquee matchup of any given week at a tennis tournament anymore. It's like these earlier rounds have pretty crazy matchups. I mean, having these first round Paris matches are also pretty exciting as well. So that's me. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, uh, speaking on what you said about uh, it being hard to to beat someone twice in a row. I think we've seen that a lot recently. 
because like we saw uh uh Zverev play Safulin in the Chengdu final and then Zverev won and then a week later uh, Safulin beat him and then we also had uh Runa lost to Kekmanovic and then comes back and beats him the next week and then obviously like this one Shelton Center splitting the matchup I think that's a, a, something we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot more of recently is like these back-to-back playing of the same two guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hercotch just beat Corda. Hercotch just beat Corda the other week too. So now you're making me second guess my <laughs> bet of the week. If he can do it twice yeah. in such a short time span too, because there's, you got to go back and make adjustments too. So he's got it. Right, let's go. Him. I think, mm-hmm. I think Hercotch is going to win that. What match. a funny yeah. guy. I think, He's so yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love him. I know, he's great. I know his game is so unglamorous, but he's <laughs> obviously super good. He has a Masters one thousand, so shout out. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's tough to beat someone twice in a row unless you're <clears throat> Novak versus Gail Mulfies. Then, uh, <laughs> unbeatable. Yeah. Or uh, or Fe- what was it? Federer versus Ferrer. Ferrer. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. All right, Quinn Parth, thanks for coming on. You know, I really enjoyed this discussion, super insightful. And if the people want to find you, where can they uh, follow you on social media? I uh, can be found at Parth underscore Vader on Instagram. If anyone wants to chat about tennis with me, let me know. I'm I'm always open. Um, I If anyone wants the most biased Rafa content they've ever seen ever, <laughs> I'm your guy. Let's go. I know we have a lot of Rafa fans. All right. Um, How about you, Quinn? I, uh, I'm i off the grid, so don't reach out. Nice. Uh, but if you do want to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me through Parth at Parth Vader <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> oh. All right, guys. Thanks. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Love being on the pod. Thanks so much. All right, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.